Amen. Well, go ahead and turn over in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 1. We're going to be back in this, one of the, one of the oldest accounts of Jesus' life and teaching. Um, we are entering into the world of the story this morning. And the first couple of weeks that we've spent in this book have been in the sort of rarefied air of, of almost poetry, of high theology, of, of beautiful and creative writing that described Jesus in a very abstract, even a beautiful but very abstract way. This morning we actually get into the meat of the story, we get our first action, our first scene of, of, uh, of the characters who are going to be so important for how the story plays out. And, and we've mentioned before that every gospel writer, John is one of four gospels, every one of them, every gospel writer tells the story a little bit differently wants to emphasize some different things, usually starts in different places, highlights different uh, aspects of who Jesus is. But some, on some things, the four gospel writers choose to use the same details. And any time that happens, you know well, this thing they're telling me about was especially central. All of them report Jesus' death, right? So you know that his death is at the core of what he came to do. One of the other things that all of them record, and this one's not so straightforward as Jesus' death, one of the other things that all four gospel writers record is a mysterious, powerful figure that's known to us as John the Baptist. The Baptist is not a title that he gets in John. He's more like John the Witnesser here. It's all about his witness or his testimony. Same guy that appears in the other gospels. He appears very early on always at the begin, near the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. So some of the other Gospels start with Jesus' birth you know, as an infant, but all of them eventually get to Jesus' public ministry, and they always get to John around the beginning of Jesus coming on the scene. What they all agree on is that there's an important sense in which you can't get to Jesus without John. You don't get to Jesus without John. That is, you don't get Jesus, you don't get him. You can't understand him, you can't benefit from him without embracing what John offers us along the way. Now, we're in a different position than the people who would have heard John's ministry, like front lines, live and in person. John, John was significant because he prepared the way for Jesus. Jesus has already come. So it can be tough for us now to understand why we should pay much attention to John. You know, he's, he's, he's not given a lot of space. and Again, Jesus is already here, so why, why should we lock in on the guy who is here to prepare the way, to point the way and announce his coming? And it's definitely true that there are some things about John's ministry that were unique to his time that really aren't relevant anymore. There's some things about John that we can't take from him because he was a unique person in history who had a unique job to do. He did his job. That job doesn't need to be done anymore. So we've got to be careful how we glean from him, not to do any sort of surface or trite, be like John sort of applications because John was, was a figure who had a role to play once and for all, and it's, it's done. That said, I think the reason God has preserved these accounts of John's ministry in, in every single one of the Gospels about Jesus is that there's something in John both in the way he understood himself and in the things that he said about Christ that are essential for us to understand if we're going to grab hold of Jesus today. 
so that even though Jesus has come and even though John's ministry is, is done and, and completed, gone, done for, there's still much to be learned from him because he pointed to Christ on the terms that any person who has ever received Jesus must come to Jesus. We want to make sure we understand what those terms are this morning. The point is not to be like John. John would have been the last person to draw that sort of attention to himself. We're going to see that pretty clearly this morning. The point of this passage, even though it's about John the Baptist, is Jesus. But there's something in John that's key to connecting with Jesus, and it's got to be in us too. And that's what we want to lock on this morning. We've got to embrace something about John's model. That's the first thing we'll look at. Most of the passage points us in this direction. Something about the way John modeled what it is to understand yourself and your need for Jesus. And then we've got to embrace John's message about Christ because he gives us in a short, in a short little passage here the core teaching about who Jesus is. That no one ever takes advantage of Christ who doesn't understand and claim this core teaching. So we're going to embrace John's model together this morning and embrace his message together this morning. I want to read the passage for us first. So if you would, please stand with me in honor of God's word. I'm going to read the story from beginning in verse 19 of chapter 1, and then I'll read all the way through verse 34. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you, what do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they'd been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you don't even know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him I myself did not know him but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God it's the word of the Lord you can be seated If any of us are going to connect with Christ, we have to embrace John's model. John's model for how to be. Something about what John knew about himself. The gist of it is this. Embracing 
what you're not is the key to knowing who you are in Christ. I mentioned already, verse 19 takes us from this sort of rarefied theological air of the first 18 verses into the nitty-gritty historical details that will dominate the rest of the book. It begins with the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites. Basically, this group was probably sent by a council of Jewish leaders known as the Sanhedrin who were sort of uh, de facto authorities over Jewish life and culture at the time. They saw themselves as, as sort of having a stake in anything that was going on among their people. And though we aren't told much about John the Baptist here in this story, we know from the rest of the accounts a lot more about his ministry, about how sensational it was, about how many people were flocking to him. And it makes sense that this group of people would want to know what that's about. They want to know especially why John is baptizing. That's a practice that it wasn't unknown among Jews at that time, but it was certainly unknown in the way that John was doing it. And there was some baptism for, say, a Gentile person who wanted to identify with the Jews. If they wanted to, to join, sort of convert to following the God of Israel, sometimes they would be baptized to symbol cleansing. Sometimes you might baptize yourself as a Jewish person to symbolize your repentance or your cleansing, your desire for cleansing from, from some sort of sin that you'd committed. But the idea that, that people, that Jews, not non-Jews, but Jews would come to another Jewish guy to be baptized was unheard of. And they wanted to know what, what was behind it all. They want to know who he is. Again, not much told about us here about him to us here in this text, but given the way the other gospel writers describe John, it is not hard to tell why these leaders would have been curious. John was not normal. He wasn't just an average guy working his trade, trying to put a roof over his family's head and put some food in their belly. No, he spent his time walking along the fringes of society shouting to anybody who would listen. He didn't just dress like everybody else. You know, he didn't just go shop and buy something off the rack like a normal guy would. He goes around dressed in camel's hair, which apparently was not what you would wear. (laughs) He didn't just eat normal food, you know, the kind of stuff that that a normal Jewish person would have gotten by on. The bread and the milk and the, if you're lucky, maybe maybe some meat. No, John, John feasted on the too-good-for-you, all-natural, enlightened diet of locusts and wild honey. He wasn't big on small talk. You know, he's not the kind of guy who, who just gets through the day making talk about things other people are interested in. You know, if, he was, if he was alive now, he's not the kind of guy who would be predicting who's going to win what Oscar, who'd be talking about Super Bowl commercials the day after, who'd be breaking down what he loved or what he hated about the State of the Union address. This is not... That kind of guy. No, he spent his time screaming, calling people brood of vipers, comparing them to a tree with an axe laid to the root, ready to be chopped down and thrown into the fire. That's what John went around speaking about. And all the while, crowds of people flocked to him to listen and to be baptized. Now, now if, if, if this guy translated into the 21st century and take his practices, his eccentricities, he planted him now into our life, 
what would you think about such a person? You think he needs to get over himself, right? You would think of him as a sort of prima donna, a sort of eccentric rock star, right? Why not just be normal? Why not just blend in with everybody else? I think that's probably what we think about such a guy. That's what I think about people when I hear them, when I hear that they have these sorts of rock starish prima donna tendencies. And don't assume first century people would have been much different. It's not a stretch to imagine that that's what these Jewish leaders were thinking when they tracked him down that day. And when they found him and asked him who he was, it's this background. It's this likely impression that they had of him that makes what he actually says that much more startling. The scene opens on the testimony of John, but the whole first scene, really from verse 19 all the way to verse 28, the whole first scene of this story, John's testimony is not to who he is, but to who he isn't. They want to know who he is, and he emphatically tells them who he's not. Look through the details with me. They ask him, who are you? Verse 20 says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. And it reads just as clunky and awkward in the original language as it reads in the English. He's falling all over himself, the writer here, to say, to talk about this emphasis that John had. I am not the Christ. Well then, surely you must be Elijah. Here they're probably thinking about this promise in one of the last prophets of Israel, Malachi, who looked ahead to a day when, when Elijah, who had been taken up from he- uh, into heaven without dying, would return, they believed, as a way of preparing Israel for the day of the Lord. Surely that must be who this guy thinks he is, right? Why else would he be behaving like this? He kind of looks like Elijah, strange clothing. He, his, his message is kind of like the one Elijah used to preach a lot of hellfire and brimstone, a lot of stark, vivid language about judgment. But he says, nope, not Elijah. Maybe you're the prophet then. Is that who you think you are? Here a reference probably to Deuteronomy where Moses predicted that one day after Israel has been sent away into exile, a prophet will come, a prophet even greater than Moses who will lead his people back. John's answer again, no. They're frustrated by him, and you can see why. They can't go back empty-handed. They're getting nowhere, but they can't just go back and say, this guy isn't anything important. The closest thing they get to a positive answer, when they finally get him to say, I am, instead of I am not, his positive answer is just as deflecting of attention away from himself as, as the statements about who he's not. He says, you want to know who I am? I am a voice. I am reduced to my voice, which cries out not about myself, but about one who's coming, which tells to you, prepare the way of the Lord. He's quoting here directly from Isaiah. When Isaiah the prophet was looking ahead to Israel being sent off into exile because of their sin, to one day when God would restore his people, and how really to, to get ready for that restoration, you've got to create some new roads. The roads that are there between Babylon and Israel now are not going to cut it. You're going to have to make them wider, add some extra lanes, knock down and blast through the hills, because God is coming for you, and he will bring you home. John is saying what he's taking that imagery that would have been familiar from Isaiah He's building on the fact that they had sort of come home already, but it wasn't what anybody was looking for. 
They're still colonized by Rome. They still don't have any power or any independence. This can't be what Isaiah meant. So the, the return from Babylon had started to take on this symbol, this symbolic significance. And John knows that. And John is saying, now is the time. This is what Isaiah was talking about. Prepare the way of the Lord because he is coming for you. So who is John? His most important answer here is who he's not. He is not the solution. He is not the hero. He is not the one that you're looking for. He can't save anybody. And he not only accepts this reality, he embraces it. People are flocking to him like a rock star and all he can talk about is who he isn't. He knows who he is because he knows who he's not and he's set free by that. Now, I want to say it again, what I said earlier. We've got to be careful here because the original point of this text to its first readers was to encourage people not to trust in John as the Messiah. That's the sort of straightforward on the surface of the text meaning here. Don't follow him. He can't do what you need. But none of you are likely to fall into that trap, right? John doesn't have the same cachet now that he probably had in the first century. I don't think any of us have ever been tempted to look to him. So one of the challenges from gleaning from John uh, on this side of Jesus is that he was sent to prepare for someone who's already come. So do we just move on, just read about him and move on? How can we get something from him that's still faithful to the text? It doesn't sort of doesn't get too creative, build too much out of it, but that, but that still offers us something. And I think this is where, this is where we can drill down on him in the sense that John knew himself. He knew that he wasn't the Christ. And the fact is that no one, ever since John, no one sitting in this room right now will ever benefit from Jesus until you first get what John got, that you are not and cannot be the Christ. You will never be able to supply for yourself or for other people what you most need. And until you get that, there's no getting Jesus. Now, now I get that you probably don't literally think of yourself as a Messiah. But subtly, in our hearts, all of us, every single one of us, are predisposed to trusting our own abilities, our own resources, our own accomplishments to overcome our own sense of inadequacy or to establish some sense of our own importance. All of us. That's our predisposition. So what I want to do briefly before we move on is kind of give you a you might have a Messiah complex if list. Again, none of you are going to say, on the surface, you think that you're the Christ. Here's some signs in all of us at one time or another that we aren't trusting Christ in the way that we need to. You might have a Messiah complex if you're often catching yourself seeking or wishing for credit for something. You know what I mean, right? Maybe you overhear somebody else talking about this new band that they love and you're the one who told them about that band. You ever want to be, you ever want to be acknowledged in that moment? 
You know, Mumford's great and all, but what you really need to know about the situation is that I told them about Mumford, right? It's the exact opposite of what John's doing here. Everybody's coming to him. They want to give him attention. They want to know who he is. He is their interest. And all he's saying is that, no, it's not about me here. It's not about me. Do you often find yourself disappointed in yourself? Let down. So sign one might be you're always looking for credit. You're always looking for acknowledgement of the things that you've done or accomplished. That can show that under the surface you're looking to be Christ yourself. You want to be the source of your solution to your inadequacy problem. But it might show up in a different way. I mean, in kind of a direct opposite way. Sometimes it's not looking for credit. Sometimes it's just sheer disappointment that you haven't been what you wished you were. Do you often find yourself feeling that way? Maybe even just in the little things of your life? Do you live with that sense of exhaustion and stress that comes from always trying and never succeeding to be what you wish you could be? It could be that that sense of stress and exhaustion is telling you that you're trying to be Jesus and you can't be. And you need to give it up. If there's freedom in giving it up, how about this one? You might have a Messiah complex if you can never, under any circumstances, say no to anything. Are you really, really busy? And you can't seem to get any less busy? I wonder if it's because you think that people or things, institutions, just can't do without you. I wonder if it's because you think that you should be able to handle more. I wonder if it's because you, you really deeply do not want to think of yourself as the type of person who gets overwhelmed easily. Uh, over Christmas break, Lindsay and I read this book called uh, Crazy Busy. I think there's a copy of it back there. It's a really interesting, helpful little book. Uh, and one of, the, one of the passages in it pulled straight from this John the Baptist account um, as, as, as an encouragement to just say no and get less busy. You've got to connect with the fact that you are not the Christ. Don't think you can save people. People can do without you. Here's one last one. You might have a Messiah complex if you're, if you're finding yourself discouraged in your ministry or service to other people. So one of the foundational Christian callings is that we give ourselves to each other. We take responsibility for each other's needs. We try to serve where we can to fill, to fill the gaps that we see in our community's life. Um, sometimes that gets messy. It's hard. It means taking on something of the struggle that somebody else has as your own. It comes with a kind of weight to it, Right? Well, it can also come with a kind of unique discouragement in ministry where if, if, if you love this person, you want to see them growing and, 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 and seeing victory and joy in what it is that, that they're struggling with, sometimes you can pour so much of yourself into that and see nothing changing that you end up getting burnout. That's the ticket to burnout in ministry. I'm not talking about ministry as a pastor 
Right? One, of the, one of our goals here at Trinity is to create a sense that all of us minister to each other. Every, every member ministry is our goal here. It's on all of us to be in each other's lives, taking care of each other. But sometimes it's messy, and sometimes it's, we just get burnt out by it. Especially when we don't feel like we can help this person get further than where they are. And I don't know if that is resonating with you, but if it is, if you have known that experience, then I guarantee you what's underneath the discouragement, what's holding you back from joy in ministry to other people, is that you, somewhere deep down inside, you want to save them. Somewhere down inside, you're struggling to let Jesus save them on his terms. Now, I'm, I'm the worst offender on this. I speak of what I know. I want people to be delivered, and I want it on my terms, on my time scale, with my right to get credit for it. In my good days, I see that for what it is, confess of it, repent of it, and pray that God will change me. But I wonder if you've ever thought about your own discouragement in that light. Anytime we want, to, we want to be in charge of the terms of somebody else's recovery, we are wanting the role of Christ in them. We can't do it. And so what it'll do to us if we carry that weight is just burn us out and keep us from experiencing the joy that's supposed to be ours in our care for each other. There's just a few examples. We could go on here. Because deep down inside, all of us have a Messiah complex. We're born with it. But until we follow John to Jesus, until we embrace his model of what it is to get that you're not the Christ, to embrace that, accept it, and find joy and freedom in it, we'll never connect with Jesus. So follow John. Embrace his model. We also have to embrace his message. Now here, we get the benefit of of just sort of sticking our toe in the water on a couple of ideas that are going to get explained in much more detail through lots of stories and teachings throughout the rest of the book. But in the, path, in, the, in, the, in the second scene of our story for today, John points us to two of the main themes that this book is going to use to explain Jesus to us. That Jesus is the only one who can take away sin, who can remove our guilt from us. And that Jesus is the only one who can give us, he's the only one who can take away what we want off of us. And he's the only one who can give to us the life that we were made for, the life that's promised to us by God's grace through his spirit. John's message is that, John's message comes directly out of what he's understood about himself. He is not the Christ, and he knows that because he knows what the Christ is supposed to do. He knows that he can't do it, and he has seen the one who is the Christ. He has seen his beauty. He's seen his fullness, and he knows he can carry the weight that none of us can so your key to, to recovery from your Messiah complex is actually getting a good, clear view of all that Jesus is. Because when you compare what you have to what Christ has, you see that you can't be him, that you don't need to be him, and you may as well just embrace all that he offers you. It's only by connecting with the beauty of who Christ is that we're able to drive out our tendency to self-reliance. And John points the way. That's his, the, the essence of his message is, here is the one you need. Let me tell you about him. Comes in verses 29 to 34. Here we've moved from John's conversation with the Pharisees who came to see him 
or the, the delegates from the Pharisees. A conversation that ended with him predicting one who was among them that even he had not recognized yet, but one who was so great that he couldn't even undo the strap of his sandal. Verse 29, he marks his man. Jesus comes on the scene. John sees him walking towards him. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in that sentence, he captures the essence of what Christ came to do, of what nothing in Israel's history had been able to do, of what nothing in our experience or in our power or our ability can do for us today. Jesus, he presents to us first as the Lamb of God. Now the Lamb imagery that John is drawing on here is all over the Old Testament. Uh, it's, It's tied up with sacrifices, with the purity that was necessary for a sacrifice to be made that would, that would put off the effects of Israel's sin for another year. It's tied up with some of the prophets and their imagery of one who would come as a conquering lamb. Mysteriously, somehow, a lamb that would conquer by its lambness. John is pulling on this imagery. John, the writer of this gospel, will develop some of this imagery, especially when he gets to the part about Jesus' death, where Christ is killed at the same time that the lambs are being slaughtered for Israel's Passover celebration. But for now, I think we can assume John is claiming all the imagery of the Old Testament, everything that was associated with the lamb, he wants you thinking about. And he says that the lamb of God has come. Because what that Old Testament background was meant to prove, this background of temples and tabernacles, of sacrifices and annual rituals, was that nothing so far had been able to account for Israel's sin. Still a problem. Every year, the same sacrifices are made. One after the other after the other. There was a point to that. A twofold point. One was that God wants to handle sin. He's not just judging you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And here's this system it's going to make that relationship possible. You can come to me through this if you come to me on my terms with these sacrifices. But the other side to his point was sin problem is not solved yet because you've got to keep making these sacrifices over and over again every year. Same thing. What John is saying is that the, the full and final solution to sin that the prophets had talked about that full and final solution where once and for all God would make his people pure? John's saying, here, here he is. This is the one. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, not just of God's people, but of the world. This God-man is the answer. That's a message we're going to be hammering over and over and over again this year. But one of the things that's going to be important for you, for each of you, to be able to connect with that message, to hear it as a message that's for you and not for somebody else, is your ability, one of the things that's going to be essential is your ability to see sin in the way that the Bible describes sin. John's, John's message, the, the, the way to Jesus, 
the way to connecting with all that Jesus is for us, cuts across the centuries, confronts each of us where we sit or stand, right now, in this moment, confronts us just as squarely as it confronted the Jews to whom John first spoke. And it confronts us especially where we fail to see sin as a problem or where we fail to see sin as a solvable problem. One of the things that's going to make it tough for you to connect with Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is if you fail to see sin as a problem, if that's just not a category that resonates with you, or if you fail to see sin as a solvable problem. Let me explain a little more about what I mean. Here we're laying a foundation for our ability to connect with everything else that comes after. Maybe you don't see sin as a problem. I think that's a struggle for all of us at some level. That it's abstract. The idea of sin against God is very abstract to us. One of the things that helps it become less abstract is when we start to understand the way the Bible describes sin. Is then it starts to show up in our experience. The Bible talks about sin as a sort of turning inward on yourself. Sin is, sin is, uh, is a turning in so that your interests are seen as more important than obedience to God or the interests of other people. Sin is a form of self-absorption, just being all about yourself. Again, it shows up in different ways. I'm not describing you yet. Hold on. It's a kind of self-worship, really, at root. To, to, to believe that your interests are more important than obedience to God, more important than the interests of other people, is a kind of worshiping of yourself, a putting of yourself in the position that only God should hold. Now, I think it's easy, I think it's easy to see sin by this definition in the big problems that all of us want to see go away, Right? It's easy to see sin defined in this way in sex trafficking worldwide. Because what it takes for a person to become a sex trafficker is that they have to believe their interest to make money and to have power is more important than the freedom and the happiness of those that they enslave. Two competing interests, they think theirs is more important. That's where sex trafficking comes from. We all see it just in the nitty-gritty. When it's happening, when we, when we are the victims of someone else's selfishness, we always see sin as a problem, right? Real, you realize that every time you've ever been cut off in traffic, you've been cut off by someone who believed their interest in getting where they're going trumps your interest in getting where you're going. But what, what's harder for us to see is that sin, by this definition, as a sort of turning in on yourself so that your interests, as you understand them, are more important than the interests of other people and that obedience to God that it shows up, that same impulse shows up in us all the time. Every time you've ever given in to the temptation to gossip about somebody, every seemingly innocent act of gossip is an attempt to make yourself look good at the expense of or in contrast to somebody else. You've elevated your interests above theirs. Every time you look at a woman on the street or on the screen and lust after her, you make her an object who is significant because of what you want. Her identity, her value, all defined by you and what you want. Not a person with a story, with a family, with parents and siblings and maybe children. An object that is significant because of 
the things that I want. Every time we resent other people for things we've been guilty of, we show that we define right and wrong based on how it affects us, not based on it as it is, right? And John knows what the Bible says throughout its books, that God especially, that God sees into our hearts, that he knows what others may never see, that he, that, that he sees clearly the reality that even our best actions, even the times when we ostensibly from the outside are giving to other people, that even our best actions are polluted by our desire to make a name for ourselves. Sometimes I wonder if I have ever in my whole life done anything genuinely just for the good of somebody else and not to be noticed by it, appreciated for it. Honestly, I think the Bible doesn't give me a lot of reason to believe that I have. It's what the prophets mean when they say that our righteousness is filthy rags. Best we've got filthy refuse. God sees that because he sees our hearts. He sees our, our sin problem for all its ugliness. He sees it more than anyone else because he's the one who made us. And no one is more personally offended by our sin than him because ultimately he is the one we're displacing. The reality is that there's also no one else besides him that can do anything for it. Because our ability to save ourselves, that ship has sailed. Again, remember, even our righteousness is tainted by our own love of ourselves. There is no climbing out of this pit. And that background, that truth, that reality of what sin is, of what kind of problem it is, that's what John knows full well. When he says that here, behold, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is saying the one who is offended most by our sin is the one who has come to get rid of our sin once and for all. Now that's never going to seem beautiful to you, friends, until you acknowledge and recognize sin is a problem, not just for other people, but for you. That's what John would have you know about Christ, have you taste in all of its sweetness this morning. There's another problem. That's one side of this problem, of, of, of not seeing sin in the way that we need to. Sometimes we don't see it as a problem at all. That's, that's the problem that I've struggled with most in my life for sure, is, is seeing sin as something that's my problem, not just somebody else's. But I realize there, there are some of you here today, and maybe at different seasons in your life for sure, who struggle not with seeing sin, but with seeing sin as a solvable problem. And for you, you wonder if, if there's really anything out there that can clean you from the filth that you have attached to your life by the things that you've done. And that problem, that problem is addressed just as squarely in this passage. This passage promises that underneath your sense that you can never undo the things you've done, that you are unworthy once and for all because of your sin, underneath that sense is a true testimony of your conscience that what you've done deserves to be punished. That there is a guilt attached to it. That it does leave a sort of stain. 
And what John is pointing us to here is that God agrees with you. Your conscience isn't wrong. But he has sent his own son as a lamb who takes away the sin of the world once and for all. That lamb comes to the slaughter. And with that slaughter comes a removal of the guilt that gives your shame its power. Now here's the message to you, friends. If you're struggling to believe that you can be washed clean, John's message to you about Jesus is that the guilt of your sin has been totally removed by Jesus and therefore you don't have the right to be ashamed anymore. That every time you give in to your shame, what you're saying is that Jesus wasn't enough. That he can't wash me. He might wash you, but he can't wash me. And friends, that is a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie that John is confronting head on here. Believe it. It will set you free. In Christ, you are clean, and not just clean, but you are right. You are what you were made to be. Once and for all, you are pleasing, a source of joy to your Father. And His approval of you is the only one that matters. Now, I haven't left myself any time for the... uh, the positive that Christ came. So he said he, he came to take away guilt. John also points us to what he came to bring. And fortunately, we've got like three chapters coming that explain this concept. I'll just point you to the verses here and then I'll explain them later when we get to them. Verses 32 to 34 promise that this one on whom the Spirit rests, he is the one who's going to baptize with the Spirit. So if as the Lamb of, the God, he takes, Lamb of God, he takes away your sin... As the one who baptizes in the Spirit, he gives you the power to enjoy the life that God wants you to enjoy now and forever. The the baptism of the Spirit was something the prophets had looked forward to for centuries, to a time when God would come among his people. He would actually be in his people, that through his Messiah would come to his people joy and life, happiness and satisfaction. Jesus comes saying, I am the one. John points us to that reality now, and Jesus gets to explain it to us. So, You want to trust in Jesus more than you do? You're going to need his spirit. Jesus came to give it to you. You want to have victory over sin that keeps dragging you back down? His spirit is the key, and Jesus came to give that to you. If you want to know that Jesus is glorious and beautiful and worthy, if you want to taste the joy and satisfaction that comes from truly believing that, you've got to have God's spirit. It's the only way, and Jesus came to give that spirit to you, friends. That's who Christ is, according to John. The key is knowing that Jesus is the only bridge for the gap between what God has promised us and what we experience now and that moving forward across that bridge means prayer for Christ to give us his spirit. We're going to pray for that now and we'll unpack it together when we come to it later on. Father, we have prayed already and we'll pray again now thanking you for promises that are rich and free, that are beautiful to us, that promise us exactly what we know we need but we also acknowledge to you that what we experience now is not what we've been promised not fully and we know that we're helpless to get there so we pray to you Christ has given us that right and here we are your children praying to you that by the power of your spirit you would wash us clean 
and give us hope and joy and peace in Christ. You alone can do it. And so we turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus, I'm resting, resting in the joy of what Thou art. 